0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and see what you want us to learn from it. We ask you to guide and lead your spirit to be present with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. First Kings chapter three, we're going to be reading in verse 16. And last week we talked about how Solomon had been just making small compromises in his life and that he ended up finally worshiping God where he was supposed to at the at the tabernacle uh, and that when god asked him what he would like to have for his life he said i want wisdom alright so we're moving on from there and starting at verse sixteen then came there two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him and then one one woman said oh my lord I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass on the third day after that I was delivered that this woman delivered also. And we were together, and there was no stranger with us in the house save the two of us. And this woman's child died in that night because she had overlaid it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to give my child suck behold it was dead and but when I had considered it in the morning behold it was not my son which I did bear and the other woman said nay but the living son is my son and the dead one is her son and thus this said no but the dead is your son and the living is my son Thus they spoke before the king. I'm going to stop there because this is we all. This story is well known in our in our day. We go of course we know how we know how Solomon is going to solve this. But I want to look a little closer at this story than just the overarching that we kind of know the story. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Solomon is asked for wisdom, and here he's presented with pretty thorny problem. Actually, yeah. there's two people with no proof on it. They didn't have a hospital footprint to go, go check at the footprint, you know, on the, on the born life, uh, born c- certificate. There's only two mothers claiming to have this be their child. And it is a situation that is faced by people a lot. When you're trying to deal with people that have no, nothing that you can prove, and there are a lot of situations where you can't really prove the situation, and that's where God can step in and give us that detailed idea. And so this is the problem before him. Two women, no hospitals involved, so nobody's ever seen these babies other than them. Apparently very young, I mean, they're still very young. You know, the babies were three days apart. And it said, one overlaid it, which means she rolled over and and suffocated the baby. Now there's a lot of things in here when you read this. You know, the one lady says, while I was sleeping, she took my baby and I got, you know. And my question goes, same thing that happened when, when the, Uh, soldiers said that, you know, while we were sleeping, the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. All right? When you're sleeping, you don't know anything. Okay? So there's a lot of things in here. When you read this, there's not a whole lot of truth here. And why would there not be truth? These ladies are used to living in in a sinful, lying lifestyle. They probably really don't understand truth in and of themselves and have no trouble with that, Idea, And this is a problem. When we live in sin, we can get so far into sin that we no longer recognize the truth when it comes come our way. I mean, the more we live in truth, the more we recognize sin. And it's very simple. You know, and we've in most everybody in this room has understood that the closer I draw to God, the closer we draw to God, the more we get to know his word, the more we start recognizing the lies Mm. and lies stand out very strongly against truth. But when you live in a world of lies and you keep lying, you get to the place where you don't trust anybody because you know that you're not telling the truth and you don't think they're telling the truth and you no longer understand what truth is when even when truth is given to you, you don't understand it. You don't see it. These are where these women are at. You know, they're harlots. They're not, they're not the cream of the crop. They're not the, they're not the one, the sterling characters out there. You know, they, they came before the, the king to produce their their arguments and, you know, the king could have said, you know, well, what do I care about you, you know, know, but that's not his attitude. They're his people and he's going to have that, I'm going to find the answer to this and he comes out with a brilliant answer. Not all our answers can be as easy as his was, okay, but he's got two people both claiming that it's their child and it's a big problem it really is a big problem because I've been, a, I've been somebody who's had to answer and help people get through to answers. And you listen to two sides of the stories and they both sound totally true. They both sound believable. And it sounds like both people are believing what they're saying. And it is very difficult sometimes to get to the truth in those situations. And this is where Solomon is at, all right? And I know we know this story because this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. If you know anything about the Bible, you can know this, this story. And we know how Solomon displays his answer. So we're going to look at this, uh, going, moving on to verse 23. Then said the king, the one, the one says, this is my son that lives, and your son is dead. And the other says, nay, but my, your son is dead, and my son lives. And the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king, and the, and the king said, divide the living child in two, and give one, half to one and half to the other. Then spoke the woman whose living son was unto the king, for her bowels yearned toward her son, and she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother. And all Israel heard the the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared God and saw that the wisdom of of God was in him to do judgment so basically he's saying kill the child and he he understood by wisdom that the mother would heart would go out to their child and said if i i don't want my child dead so i'd rather do without my child than lose my child and solomon then of course gave her to the one that that cared about the child and doesn't tell us what he did to the other woman okay Uh, and under jewish law if you commit perjury Whatever the crime, whatever the punishment was for the person that you perjured against was what fell to you. Perjury was not just a slap on the wrist, put, spend some time in jail like it is in our system. If you were at a capital offense and you perjured yourself and it was found out that you had perjured yourself, you were put to death because that was the price of the capital crime. If the price was to, that you were going to have to pay back four times as much that to the person than you as the, as the person who perjured yourself. You know you want to talk about being able to stop perjury? <laughs> you know, uh, it was a pretty effective way to stop perjury because you got back what it was. And I don't know what the, what the penalty on this would have been. I really don't. But I'm sure that the other girl did not get scot-free. <laughs> you know, well, you'd claim this child, and you, and you came to the court. You wasted the court's time with this false claim. I'm sure she did not get away without any punishment. The Bible doesn't tell us what that was. It just keys in on the fact that Solomon came up with a very good solution to a he said, she said, or in this case, she said, she said situation that really had no answer other than the mother's love being brought out. And, you know, and this is some of the, one of the things that happens to us. If we will start listening to God, he will advise us. He will lead us. He will give us discernment in places that seem to have no answer. We will get an answer. Sometimes the answer doesn't seem to make any sense until afterwards. And there's been many times where God has said, don't do something or do something. And I go, God, I don't understand. You know, I don't understand why you're doing this. And a week later, I find out exactly what, why he said you know, hopefully I listen to him. And usually as a pastor, when it comes to the church, I try to listen to God. In my own life, I'm not as good. But <laughs> for the church, I go because I really have some responsibility here, you know, to everybody in the church. So I try, if God is speaking to me, I try very hard to listen. Not that I do it perfect. But you know, we listen to him. And he'll give us the nudge in the right direction. Sometimes he'll give us a shove in the right direction if it's a serious, you know. And we can fight against it. Well, you can argue against it, you know, you've got to, but you picture this, Solomon goes out there and he goes, okay, hey, soldier, bring your sword over here, we're going to cut the baby in half, you know, and probably, everybody was probably looking at him like, what kind of solution is this, Solomon, you know, you're going to, we have one baby, now you're going to kill a second one, you know. Uh, and it was kind of like that is actually the law if you were irrespons- if you had borrowed something from, from somebody and it died in your position in your possession and it was something that you did not know about you weren 't responsible for. if you were responsible, you got the dead one and, and, and the other person got the live one. but if you weren 't responsible you, you would cut b- both the dead one and the and, and live one in half and you 'd both get <laughs> half of it. Okay. So Solomon is actually applying god 's law to things, (laughs) to children. Mm -hmm. Not that he was going to cut that baby in half. I'm sure he was never going to cut that baby in half. He was depending on the mother, having the heart saying, I am not going to let my child die. I would rather let my child live with this other woman who I'm going to hate for the rest of my life because of this, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to not let my child die. And that was what Solomon was hoping for and looking for. So we see here the wisdom that God gives. And it can be any situation. And if you've ever tried to solve problems between two people, it can be tough, especially if there's no facts. And it's easy to decide when your kid's sitting there with chocolate smeared across their face, you know, that they got into the cookies and they were denying they were, they were denying they were in the cookies. That's an easy one. There's no, you know, but well, what do you do when you haven't been home and the kids are saying it was his fault or her fault or, or their fault, and you're going, okay, you know, what are the facts you know you might ask them you might question them and might get to a bottom bottom of it eventually but it takes some time and it takes some questioning and it takes some discernment and you know interestingly enough sometimes it's just when we're witnessing to people god will give us discernment people might you know oftentimes people will say something they don't even know why they're saying it okay um there was an event that my dad was saying, he brought some friends over to church one time that were lost and they're going, he goes, and they go, well, we don't like church. We do know, my dad goes, you'll never know what's happened. And they go, well, we bet there will not be line dancing in your church, no. <laughs> okay? Now that church never had line, never had dancing period, much less line dancing. But the singers that night in the middle of their song decided to do just a, just a quick few seconds of a line dance. <laughs> okay. Uh, didn't go over well with many of the pastors, but it was God telling them to do it so that this person would see that God was true. Mm -hmm. You know, What happens out there? We never know what we're saying sometimes. There's times when you might say something to somebody and they go, that's just what I needed to hear from God. And you're going, what did I say? Mm -hmm. What in the world did I say? I don't know. What What did I say? You don't even know. I was praying to hear just those words that made no sense to you, but made perfect sense to me. We never know what it is if we just listen to God and open our lives up just to be able to do or say what he wants us to say and do. And this is the key to this whole section here. It's a long section. There's not a whole lot more I can say about that section, but discernment is so important. God gives wisdom to his children. It's not just Solomon. He gives wisdom, because the Holy Spirit indwells us, and if we are in tune with God and we are listening to the Spirit, and we're trying to walk with God, the Spirit will work. The Spirit will let us see, and it's wonderful when th- when it really works. And you're looking through, and somebody's trying to trying to pull some kind of game on you, and you're just looking at it like, uh, I see right through. The, I mean, you did a good job at it. You did a great job at it. I should I should I should have been I should have been tricked, but God has just opened up opened it up, and you're not, you're not tricking me. You know, normally I don't tell somebody, but, but I just get that. It's kind of like watching the bad magician do their trick, and you're seeing everything they're doing. You know, God will open up our eyes in discernment sometimes just to see these things. Or when we're witnessing to somebody, and God just opens up our eyes for just the right way to approach that person, and we're able to witness to them, and all of a sudden it is just so powerful because God is there. or you're sharing your testimony or or some activity and God is in it. And there's times when I know God is in the message that I give. There's times I know that it's me. Not that it's a bad message for everybody else, but I know that it's me teaching, and there's times I know that it is God teaching, that he's just using it. And it may be a mixture of both (laughs) throughout the message. And because none of us are going to walk with God completely 100% of the time, but we want our desire to be so close to God that He is speaking through us. He is touching people's lives through us. And we may end up saying things that make no sense, doing things that make no sense, you know, and God is going to touch people's lives from it. And that's where we're going to stop on that one because there's not a whole lot on that on that one. And we know that story well. Uh, I can't think of too much more to say discernment. Discernment is important. Chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Then King Solomon... Was king over, So King Solomon was king over all Israel. And there were princes which he had, Azariah the son of Zadok the priest, Elihoreth and Ahiah the sons of Shisha scribes, Jehoshaphat the son of Elihud the recorder, and Benai the son of Jehoiada was over the host, and Zadok and, At- and Avatar were the priests. And Azariah the son of Nathan was over the officers, and Zebud, the son of Nathan, was principal officer and the king's friend. And Ahishar was over the household. And Adarimam was the son of the son of Avadon was over the tribute. All right. So here we have just a list of Solomon's rulers, the people that make up what we would say in our in our way way of thinking the cabinet. All right. Uh, we see here that he had. They call them princes. The actual definition should have been rulers. They were the rulers with him. They weren't technically princes because princes had to be his sons. So they're rulers. Uh, Yes, uh, it was one of those mistranslated words. (laughs) Priests. Some of them were priests, some weren't. Uh, The first one was Azariah was a priest. And he was being made the high priest. He would have been the priest over all the priests. That's what we get to. Okay. Okay. The scribes literally are people that record things okay. and count things. Okay. Uh, in this particular case, they could have been the treasurers. They could have been the ones that did the census. They're the ones that record various activities that are going on. So those two are the ones that they're sitting there. Okay, this happened. This happened. Uh, okay, this guy gave 50 pieces of silver. This one brought in five peacocks. You know, and they, They're the ones that are... Reckoning and recording everything. Uh, Now, Elihud, the recorder, is literally the chronicle. chronicle. He's the one keeping the history. All right? Everything that's going on, he's the one that writes up every single point that's going on. Uh, That's Elihud. It's the last part of verse 3. It says the recorder. He's the the chronicle. He's the one that's chronicled. Uh, The book of Chronicles and Kings itself were both... From parts of those chronicles, they wrote Ellen everything in the official history. if you remember the story of Esther, the king couldn't sleep one night, so he called for the man to bring the chronicles out. he would have been the one that was the one that wrote everything and then they were reading it to him he, he was hoping to be bored to death, bored to sleep okay and he ended up finding that there was an event that hadn't been rewarded and then they had you know, the whole story of how uh, how uh, the blessing came and everything. All right. So this is that man. He's the recorder. He's the one that's. He sits there the whole time. This person came. This person came. This person came. Uh, this was, instruction was given to the to the captain. This one was given to the general. Uh, the king made this decision. This person. He'd have been the one that wrote this story down of the of the women coming into the court. He, you know, some things would be very well detailed. Others would be just a note in the in the, diary, uh, the day's diary. All right, some would be very well, especially if he got interested in it, would be well written up. Another one would be just a little note in the book. All right, uh, we had Beniah the son of Jehoiada. He was, he was over the host. That means he was the general of the army. Uh, Beniah has been the one who's been the executioner or at least the one that was charged with getting the executions done. We talked about that last week. He was the one that went out and and uh, committed to, you know, it says that he went out and killed them. But being the general, he probably assigned a squad of soldiers to do it. But it was his job to make sure it got done. Benaiah, verse, three, verse 4. That's the, one who would carry the son of Jehoiada was, the, was over the host. That means the army. Oh, okay, that's okay. So he was over the army. And Zadok and Avatar were the priests. All right. And those are very famous guys. We've talked a lot about them over the last... Last few chapters. Most of these guys are not mentioned other than this one time. These first two chapters we have these guys mentioned a lot. We know know these guys. We've heard their names before. All right. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officer. So he was in charge of the rulers of the house. So he is the overseer of the rulers. And then we have Adoranam, the son of Adida. He was over the tribute. He is the treasurer. All the money goes in. He's the one that's keeping track of it. He's the one that's guarding it. He's the one that puts it in the treasury and decides how it's spent out, and he keeps track of it. He's the one that, if you go in and say, give me a reckoning, had better be able to account for every ounce of gold that was and silver and whatever else was in that treasury, he was the one that had to, to be able to give that account. All right? And then we had... Zebud, the son of Nathan, was was the principal officer. He was the chief ruler. All right, he would be the kind of like the second in charge type guy. He was the one that, when Solomon wanted things done in the house, he was the one that was given that instruction, and then he would give it to the one the appropriate people. Was he also, the son, of Nathan? Huh? Was he also the son of Nathan? Yes, the son of Nathan. And this is probably Nathan the prophet that was the one that went to David and said, "You are the man." Yeah, may or may not be, but we kind of think, you know, Nathan was a pretty key character. He was, Nathan was a key character to get Solomon in his position, because remember, he's the one that said, uh, Bathsheba, do you know what's going on? Uh, you need to go talk to David. <laughs> and then he came in while she was talking and told you know confirmed her story. Probably his sons. He, Nathan was a chief advisor to David. Isn't he the same one that, that gave David the
1: story? Huh? Yes,
0: yes, same Nathan. At this point, Nathan's fairly old, so his sons are not, young, are not youngsters either. All right, and then also it says that Zabud was the king's friend. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. Here is somebody who is just the king's friend. He's, he's, head, of, he's head of all the, the rulers, and he's the, the king's friend. And that one st- the statement stuck out to me because we are Jesus's friend. He is king and we are his friend. So I see a very small picture of Jesus here because we have the ear of Jesus as his friend. Now we have a deeper relationship because we're also the bride of Christ, which makes us one with him. All right. So we have a deeper relationship than just Friendship. And because of that relationship with Jesus, we then also get to have the father be called our father with all the rights and privileges of that position. And this is a beautiful picture. There's a friend. He has a friend amongst all these people. And then it says, Abishai was over the household. He would be over the servants. All right. Kind of like the butler. (laughs) He is is a servant, but he is over all the other, other people. And Adoniram is, is over the tribute. I mentioned him already, sorry. So we have just here a list of people that are important positions. You know, and the thing I think about when I see this and the next list that we're going to look at, how many times do we do things in our life and think that we're being insignificant? Hmm. You know, Nobody knows who we are. Nobody knows anything about us. Who knows anything about what the butler does? Who knows anything about the chronicle? And yet their names are in the Bible, being read 4,000 years from when they happened, and they're being recognized. And I'm sure many of them were thinking, well, I'm just a nobody. I'm just the the one writing down the notes of everything that happens every day. Nobody, Nobody even cares about me. Nobody knows about me. All I do is sit in the corner. The king probably doesn't even know who I am. I'm just sitting here. Writing down, writing down names and numbers and, and facts, and yet he ends up in the scriptures. Very important for I think this is the point I see when I read these kind of lists of names, because most of these names, many of these names are not mentioned anywhere else. Those first couple we know, we know these guys. They're they're mentioned a lot. Most of these other guys, if they're mentioned at all again, they're mentioned in Chronicles and the great big long, ten chapter. Uh, genealogy and they're nowhere else mentioned and these were guys that were just important in solomon's court and they get to be remembered a a millennial later you know to be saying hey this this name here do you do you really understand that god records everything we do so he can bless us and when he stands when we stand before him at the bema seed and he says here's your rewards All you did was serve me purely and and honestly. You let me work through you. Here's your reward. We don't rewards we're going to have, because I want to tell you right now, if you think you've got a reward, it's probably not going to be a rewarded activity. Because you probably did it in your own strength. I'm not saying every one of them. There are things we do that, that we're just serving God and we go, yes, that was a great event. You know, people got saved and I know God was working but we don't take pride in it. But I'm going to tell you most of the things that are going to surprise us was the smile we gave to somebody that encouraged them, the pat on the back that encouraged them, the way we lived our life and then going, that's the way a Christian is supposed to live. And we don't even know that they saw it. You know, until we get to heaven and God says, see, right there. Because you put them on the right path, they got saved, you know, next day, a year later, two years later, ten years later, but you were one that showed them what a real Christian is supposed to look like and change their life. And we're going, God, I don't even remember that. He goes, Exactly. Exactly. You don't remember it. Mm -hmm. Those are going to be our really big rewards is when we do something and we don't even know it. You know, we remember when Jesus told the people, you know, you, when I was naked, you didn't feed me. You fed me when I was hungry. You fed, you know, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was naked, you uh, hungry, you fed me. And I can't even get the verse right, but you know, over and over again, they go. you visited me in prison. He goes, God, when did we do all that? You know, they did not know that they were serving God during those times. You know, they just were serving God, and God recognized it. Most of our service for God is just like this. God, all I am, all I am is the treasurer. God, all I am is the scribe. I'm just, I'm writing down, I'm recording things. I'm keeping, keeping the books. God, all I am is the one writing down everything that's happening. God, I'm just the one that, you know, cleans the floors, gets rid of the weeds in the, in the parking lot just to, because it needs to be done. God, I'm a nobody. Nobody knows who I am. And God says, that's fine, I do. That's these men. That's these men. Now, granted, they're in positions of authority. There were certain people that know them. But, you know, for even us in America, how many of us can name even two or three people in the cabinet of the president? You know, most of us can't even name our own congressmen and congresswomen, you know, in, in, in most cases. You know, so that's these type of people. They're in positions of, there are certain people who know them, but most of the people don't know them. And here we are, several thousand years reading their names. We don't know much about them. We don't know what they did, what they didn't do, but their faithful service was recorded to be remembered. And this is the way it is for us as we serve God. He records our faithful service. You know, and most of the service that we that we record is never going to be known, never going to be known by us until we stand before God. You know, I've shared with you one of my favorite songs is "Thank You." You know, "Thank You," and it says, you know, where I dreamed I went to heaven, you were there with me. And he says, this one boy, this one man ran up to him and says, "You don't, probably don't remember me, but when when I was in Sunday school, when I was eight years old, I accepted Christ because of your." of your service. Another one comes up, you know, I'm here because you gave your last dollar to the missionary and that money came, came, you know, little things that we don't recognize are where we're going to get those blessings. And it might just be a simple kind word. It might be when God puts somebody on our heart and we pray for them. And all of a sudden we wake up in the middle of the night and somebody's on our mind and we go, and my attitude is, okay, God, I don't know why this person's on my mind, but I'm, I'm lifting them up because you woke, you woke me up for some reason. Or I'm driving down the road and somebody's name just pops into my head. Okay, God, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm praying for them. Those blessings are going to be the blessings we get in heaven when God says, yep, you, you did it. Now, let me show you what they were going through. When you were praying, this was the battle they were going through. You, know, you knew nothing about the battle, but here's the battle they were going through. And your extra prayers helped get them through that battle. You know, we don't know the full impact of what we're doing. We are just to serve God. And even if it has no effect in anybody's life, pure obedience to God is going to be rewarded. God says, well, it didn't really make any change; They still made the wrong decision, but you were obedient. Here's your reward. And we don't do it for the rewards. We do it just because we're looking to serve God. And that's where our rewards come. Because I know, and I shared this with the pastors one time, I'm going, you know, how many pastors get up and preach a wonderful uh, message and people get blessed all over the place, but we may not get any blessing because we're doing it for only one reason. The church paid us to get up front and speak that day. And if I didn't get up and speak, I wasn't earning my pay, so I got up and spoke. And it may be a great message, but it wasn't a God message. You know, people in the audience may have gotten a lot out of it. May have gotten gold, silver, and precious stain and changed their life. But that attitude to me, I did it for the wrong reasons. It wasn't the right way. And I just had a whole bunch of wood. Good, strong, sturdy building. Good, you know, worth something, but burns up. Other times, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to teach. you know. And I'm not saying just because you do something because you have to, it's wrong. Just make sure you're still doing it with God. And it's very important that we do that. And these men just get listed. Nothing nothing really said about them, their name and their job. But they're remembered. Thousands of years later, they're remembered. All right, verse 7. And Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel, which provided victuals for the king and his household. Each man, his month and a year, made provision. And these are the names the son of Hur in Mount Ephraim, the son of Decha, in Mechaz, and in Shalabim, and Beth Shibmesh, and Elong Beth Harnan, and Hesed in Ereboth, to him pertained Succoth, and the land of Hefer, and the son of Abedab, in all the region of Dor, in which the Tabath the daughter of Solomon and, and, which had Tabath the daughter of Solomon to wife Va'ana the son of Ili, Ahilud to him pertained Takanak and Megiddo and Shean, which is by Zartana between Zer, Zeriel from Bethshean to Abel, uh, Abel Meholah even to the place that was beyond Jokhna'am. And the son of Geber, the Ramoth Gilead, to him pertained the towns of Jair, the son of Manasseh, which were in Gilead, to him also pertained the region of Agab, which is in Bashan, Threescore great great cities which, with walls and brazen bars. Ahinadab, the son of Iddu, Ed, had Mahanaim and Ahimazir was in Natali. And he also took Vashmath, the daughter of Solomon, to wife. Bahana, the son of Hushai, was in Asher and in Aloth. And Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the son of Ba'uah in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah in Benjamin. Giber, the son of Uri was in the country of Gilead and in the country of Sih- Sihon king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan and he was the only officer which was in that land. Judah and Israel were many as the sand and by, which is by the sea in the multitude eating and drinking and making merry. Long list of princes. Some of these cities, some of these cities may or may not sound familiar. Okay, uh, some of them we don't know where they're at. All right, so I, I gave up after a while. I, I didn't know the maps well, maps well enough. but some, Let's look at a couple of these names on here. But these men, for one month, had to supply Solomon's palace with food and supplies. Now, we think, okay, big deal. They had one month to supply these foods. Well, wait till we get to the list of what they had to supply on a day. The number we're going to have is per day, and they and they served this. They they had to provide this for twenty eight days, in you know, twenty eight days every month. All right. So Mount Ephraim is just just north of, of uh, Jerusalem. All right, uh, and we see here uh, that one of the uh, two of these guys were married to Solomon's daughter, so they actually had become princes in their. In their right, because they were they were in, in married to to the princesses. Uh, so we, we have two of the guys that were married to Solomon and were were part of his. Ramoth Gilead is up around the Benjamin uh, is around uh, Bethlehem. All right, um, that one is a very famous one. We talk about one of our famous verses. Ramoth Gilead, had, you know, was weeping, which means Benjamin of Bethlehem was weeping. So it's another name for Bethlehem. Uh, we come in here and we see uh, another one that we look at Bashan, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, up around the northern part. Uh, Bashan is why the two and a half tribes stayed on the other side of the river because it was the best, the best ground to to feed your flocks, and it, it became a very famous place. You'll see the the. Cattle of Bashan were bigger and larger than everything. That was a great place to grow, you know. Grow, <laughs> feed your cattle and have them grow. All right. So that was that area. Uh, as we look at Bashan, uh, we see the names of Og and si- uh, Sihon. Those were the kings over Bashan on the eastern side. They're the ones that the Israelites fought in the days of Moses. So they're on the, they were from the east side. So that area is, again, identifiable real quick and easy. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. And uh, it said that only one, one man was in that area. So those are the areas that really stand out to me. All right? Two of them get married to Solomon's daughters. And, and these guys all have a job. They're, in, they're made in charge of providences all over Israel. Now, in the day that this was written, these, all these towns and everything meant a lot. They meant a lot to these people. Um, It would be just like us, you know, if we were to talk about in in our area, you know, we start with chloride. How many people outside of this area know where chloride is? I mean, most people in Kingman don't even know where chloride is, okay? We talk about Dolan Springs. People know where Dolan Springs is, why? Because it's on the way to the (laughs) the western rim, okay? Uh, we talk about Yucca. Maybe some people know where Yucca is. Some people don't know where Yucca is. You know, we can keep picking these little towns that t- if you're in the area, you know exactly where they are. Mm-hmm. You get further away, you go, what are you talking about? Where, where are these towns? What, are you, what towns are you talking about? Many of these towns were not very famous. Bethlehem in that day only had about 30 families in it. It, it, was only, it wasn't much bigger than chloride. Somewhere between 300 to 1,000 people. And that's how big that town was when David was born there. Even when Jesus was born there, it didn't have much more than that. It was always just a small town. It became famous after Jesus was born, and Christians started you know, traveling there. But it's always been a small place, and many of these are small places that we know of through Bible study sometimes, and some of them we don't know. I looked up and they go, we don't know where this one is. We don't know where this one is. We don't know where this one is. Uh, so, but again, we have insignificant places being recognized for, for whatever it is that's being looked at. Megiddo is, is the valley that the Battle of Armageddon is going to be fought in. Yep. And it is, it is, north, of, it is north of Jerusalem as well. Yes, it's still, it's a lot of craziness is still going on in Megiddo. Yeah. Yeah. It, is, it is the center of all of prophecy, is the Megiddo Valley. Uh, many of the great generals described it as the, the perfect place to have a war because of how flat it is when it's inside and it's got the walls, to, to the mountains on both sides to keep, keep your troops from running away. Wow. So they go, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect place for a battle. It's further up, yeah. Yeah, it's further up. Yeah, there's lots of good names. I'm not going to pick every one of them. It's, there's a lot of good things in here. And if you want to take it, get out your concordance, look, and see a couple of them have other names. Sometimes this is the only place. But usually in most of them, we just don't know where it is. And again, why do we not know where these are? It's the same thing when we talk about animals and trees and everything. Those are specialized language, and people don't really understand how they're used. Many of the animals that are referenced in the Bible, we don't know who they, what they are. We think they do. We do. We might have a certain class of animals in there, but we don't necessarily know unless it's a common animal. When they talk about trees, we don't really know what tree they're talking about half the time because the biblical scholars weren't experts in trees. <laughs> they didn't care about the words that the trees were, and those things have slipped out of usage over, over time. And it's the same thing even in our English language. I remember a commercial one time on the radio back east where they were talking about all the different parts of a, of a curtain. And I couldn't even begin to tell you. They had names for all the parts of the curtain. And one of the people was from Australia and she goes, well we don't even have a word for that. And I'm going, you do, you just don't know it. Yeah. You know, there's so many words that are specialized words that we don't know. Alright? Uh, and a lot of times that's what's true of, in these verses. Sometimes we don't no, And these maps, unless we have an old map, we don't know what it is. And sometimes we're guessing. And if you look at your maps, a lot of times they'll, they'll have a name of something to put a question mark after it. This is where we think it might be. Okay. And then hopefully we get an older map somewhere along the lines. We can find out where things are, or we get another reference that kind of pinpoints it. So don't get too upset when you don't know all these places. All right. But we ended this in verse 20, Judah and Israel were many as the sand in the, in the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and ma- making merry. This is a good time for Israel. David has conquered all the enemies. Solomon has in- inherited a peaceful place that is very wealthy, and he's going to make it more wealthy. All of the lands around them are either conquered or in subjection. We're going to read here that he owns the land from Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. He owns all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And they have land over the other side of the Jordan. Almost every piece of land that Abraham walked on, which was promised to them, almost everything was owned under Solomon's reign that Israel was supposed to own. It's a time of celebration. Now, having said that, times of celebration are also the worst time for your spiritual life. Because it is funny to think that so many people want money. They want, they want stuff, and yet stuff often drives people away from God. Because they forget they need Him. They forget that He is the one that gave it to them. And they, go, they start trusting in their stuff. And that doesn't mean that stuff is bad. You know, you can have stuff and still follow God. And God wants to bless us. But I have seen more people over the years in, Christian, in the Christian walk get blessed with stuff and then stop coming, stop following God. You know, and you go, well, where have you been? Well, you know, I, got, I had to go out to the summer cottage and I had to use my boat. And, you know, I, I, we went out for a ride on the bikes and we went out for, you know, we, went, went, we did this, we did that. We've got all kinds of stuff. You know, we just got to use the stuff, you know. And I understand you got to use your stuff, but don't buy so much stuff. You know, if that's going to, if the stuff is going to distract you from God, don't buy the stuff. Keep using it for God. And, you know, and it's not everybody that happens, and it's not wrong having stuff. You know, we don't, there's nothing good about poverty, necessarily. If God wants you in poverty, and that's where you need to be, he's going to bless you, and you're going to be doing well. But if he gives you all kinds of gifts and, and blessings... Use it for him and and enjoy the blessings he's given you. But keep using it for him. Keep serving him. Keep in his word. Keep in his church. And some of the greatest people I've known in churches, people would not have known how wealthy they were. You know, the church needs, you know, $50,000. They just write a check and give it, you know, give give it secretly behind, you know, behind everybody's backs and say, I don't even, you know, and I had people at the previous church where I was treasurer, they would say, this is to be put into the bank. I don't want anybody to know where it came from. And I'd look at it, and it was what we needed to, to pay you know, to pay some big, big bill. You know, so I got to know who the wealthy people were, and I never said who they were and never would. Because they didn't want people. They didn't live like they were wealthy. Yes, most of them had stuff. Most of them had nice stuff, but the stuff was not running their life. We're going to see that the stuff in Solomon's life and, and the people of Israel is going to lead them away from God. And it can, and it does quite often. It depends on our heart. We have to be able to say, God, I want to serve you. And this is just stuff. We hold the stuff loosely. And God says, get rid of it. We get rid of it. God says, you can keep it. You keep it. But don't let the stuff control you. And because it's important. And I would much rather have stuff than not have stuff. I've been in both sides of the coin. It's kind of fun having stuff, but I don't want my stuff to rule me. If God says, move, I want to be able to just leave everything behind and move. If I can't get rid of it, I can't, can't sell it, I'll just leave it behind. I've, I've done it many times in my life, just left everything behind and had to regather the stuff. Hey, Jerry, I don't I don't know. But, there's, but even that, you have to be careful with that statement. Traveling light is not necessarily a righteous way to be either. What okay? the actual part of that should be is my stuff does not possess me. Okay? I can leave without needing the stuff. All right, because there's nothing wrong with this stuff. There's nothing wrong with going out with stuff as a missionary. But we can't let the stuff control us. There's times in the church where they believe that he had to be wealthy to be, to be righteous. All right, that was Job's problem, and that was his friend's problem. You know, if you weren't wealthy, something was wrong with you. And it's been, it's been that way off and on. Then there's times in the church where you gotta be, you gotta be broke, you can't have anything. If you have stuff, you're, you're not righteous. It's neither side is right. There's nothing inherently righteous about having wealth, and there's nothing inherently righteous about having nothing. It all depends on your attitude toward the stuff. Israel is in trouble at this point. Not yet, but we see the same thing we saw in the previous chapter where Solomon is making just little bit bad decisions. He went to worship God in the wrong place. He finally came back and worshiped God in the right place. Little steps of wrong decisions. And usually our wrong path starts with just a step or two off the path. <laughs> you know, well, God, you know, this ground is pretty hard. I I just want to walk over here in the, in the soft grass and in the, in the soft dirt. You know, this ground is hard that you're making me walk on. And the next thing we know... We've drifted further and further and further from the path, and we go to look for the path, and we can't find it. You know, the alcoholic did not start with that first drink thing. I think I'm going to be an alcoholic. You know, They're just, I want to stop thinking about whatever I'm thinking about. All my friends are doing it. I want to fit in. The drug addict is the same way. The person who falls into fornication usually doesn't just decide one day, well, you know what, I don't think I'm just going to go sleep around you know, a lot. I just think that that's just really what I want to do today. You know, it starts out with trepidation on the first time and trepidation on the second time. Before long, it's second nature and you're, you're doing it all the time. Same thing with adultery. Most people don't wake up one day, you know, I just think I'm going to cheat on my spouse today. I think that would be a really good thing to do today. That's not usually what happens. I mean, yes, there are some really strange, bizarre things where that does happen. But usually it's a long sequence of events where you're, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time or you're in the, the wrong attitude when that person is just being nice to you. And they may not even be trying to seduce you at that time. They're just being nice. And you haven't had somebody be nice to you in a long time and all of a sudden there's an attraction that starts sparking and you start thinking the grass is greener on the other side. And before long, you're caught. This is the way sin works. Little sin. Little dangling. Eve in the Garden of Eden. Spending a long time looking at the tree and wondering why did God say we couldn't eat of that fruit? Was, was the first time she'd ever been looking at that fruit the time Satan talked to her? I don't think so. I think she was over there a lot. And Adam was probably there a lot. I wonder why God said we couldn't eat this fruit. Okay, let's walk away. Yeah, I wonder. God, you know, I just don't understand why this, this one tree yeah, you know, this one tree. Put that little bug in your ear, Michael. And then Satan came along to 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 really tempt. But there, I'm sure it was one of those things where they were like, I wonder, I wonder why, I wonder, wonder why. Nothing, not wanting to, not really wanting to, but just, I wonder why. As I walked by, they were in a garden. They didn't have to be anywhere near the tree. And yet they, they were found near the tree. You know, and you know that it had to have been something along those lines. I wonder why we can't eat this tree. And one of that really takes us to the thing about sin. We need to stay as far away from sin as we possibly can. We don't dangle around the edges and dance around the cliff edge and then wonder why we fell off the cliff. we well, want what others don't have. Satan tempting us. It doesn't have to be Satan even. It can, it can be us. Our hearts desire things too. I mean, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life wants things that we don't have. And Satan then turns around and really, you know, sticks the sticks a knife in and twists it around a little bit. But, you know, we, we, we can do enough damage ourselves without even having him get involved. So we see things that we want. And our flesh wants it. And then our, our mind gets involved in saying, if I could just have that, I'd have a better life. And we do, the, that's the process all the time. We see, we want, and then we, we justify it. And we have to be careful. We cannot be playing around the edges of sin. The alcoholic who gets saved who, who says, I'm not going to touch, and they've been doing a really good job, and then they decide they're going to hang out with their friends while they drink. And I'm not going to drink. Well, they might do it for a while. Maybe they'll get away with it for a long while. But eventually they'll probably fall. Yeah, it's, one, one's not going to hurt. Yeah. So we need to be very careful about this. You know, and, and the thing that people will go, well, how close can I get before I've sinned? You're already too close. You're thinking about it. If you're close enough to try to figure out how close you can get, you are too close in the first place. You know, because, yeah, if you want the letter of the law, you can get pretty darn close to things. But you're tempting yourself, why? It's like going up to the Grand Canyon and playing on the edge of the rim and then being surprised that you fell into the Grand Canyon. Of course, now you're never going to have another thought after that. But let's, let's make it a ditch. You know, it's a, it's a three foot ditch. And you're playing and skirting around the edge of the ditch and you end up falling into it. And you wonder, how did I fall into it? You were too darn close to the edge. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't have been that close. And any time that God is telling us that we're too close to a sin, we need to get away from that sin. All right? If you catch yourself wondering, have I crossed over the line? You may not have crossed over the line, but get moving away from it. Because yeah. that's the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, you're, you're too close. Get moving away from that. And it's very important for us that we move away from it because what we put into our heart eventually is going to grow into fruit and be able to manifest itself because of the fruit that is involved with it. And we want to be very careful. Do not flirt around with sin. You know, don't say, well, you know, all my friends are doing it. God, you don't want me to get rid of my friends, do you? Probably. <laughs> if your friends are all doing bad things, God wants you away from those friends. You need a new set of friends. You need a new, new way of thinking. You need a new group of people to hang out with. Do you totally abandon your friends completely? Probably not. You need some people lost to talk to once in a while. If you're going to say if you're going to lead anybody to Christ, you need some lost friends. Mm -hmm. But are they going to be the ones you hang out with? No, because we already know that who you hang out with, you become like. And we know that bad will corrupt good more often than good corrupt uh, will will change bad. All right, and it almost always works that way. On a rare occasion, the good may may change somebody. The odds are against you. Don't, don't play that game. All right? Hang out with good people or, well, that's relative. Hang out with people who want to follow God rather than not follow God. Godly people. Because there are no such thing as good people. So go find people that are godly. Spend time with them. That is the biggest advantage of the body of Christ, being with the body of Christ. Is the body of Christ going to keep you from doing anything, all, all things wrong? Absolutely not. But you know, most of the people in the body of Christ are trying to follow God, and you're going to have a lot easier chance of staying with God than hanging out with the bar. You know, or hanging out with the thieves, or the drug users, or the other people that are, are looking to have a, a hookup and a, and a one night stand. You know, if those are the people you're hanging out with, you are eventually going to become like them at least by hanging out with the christians if you want to find the wrong group in the christians you can when i was going to the christian school there were people in the christian school that wanted to do alcohol and drugs and everything and they found each other now in that particular case more of us wanted to be good and godly and there was only a handful but they found each other they found the ones that wanted to sleep around they found the one you know they found each other and they hung out and and found you know we need to find those who are going to want to be good, godly people. And then we encourage one another. When we see somebody slipping, we go, hey, get back, get back, come on back. You know, here, here's my hand, get back over here on this side. You know, you know. And I can tell you, I've seen it over and over in the years. You see somebody who's on fire for God. And the next thing, they start missing one service a month. Then they start missing two services a month. Huh? I said I feel like you're putting me on blast right now. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, but you you see it, and the next thing you know, where's so and so I haven't seen them for months. Well, they've been out in the world. It is real easy to get there, and that's why we as Christians need to, when we see somebody sliding backwards, we need to reach out to them and say, "Hey, I've missed you," and that may be all it takes to get somebody because. What happens when you miss a couple services and nobody calls you? Satan is right in your ear. See, I told you nobody. You, you knew nobody loved you. Nobody cares about you. Nobody, nobody even knows you're missing. That one call that you're obedient to do may be all it takes to get somebody to go, oh, there is somebody who's missed me. You know, and, you know, I will do it, but, you know, it'll mean much more from, from, from you all than it will from me. Because if I do it, people go, well, that's pastor. He's just doing his job. Even though I mean to call them and I love them and I miss them, you know, there's this idea that that's what he's paid to do. And I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to write the letter. I'm going I'm to make the phone call and all of that. But it really means something when the body of Christ reaches out to the body of Christ. Because you know, they're not paid to do it. They're not, they're not positioned to do it. You know, my attitude is I want everybody here, so I'm going to reach out anyway. But it's looked at, mine is, is kind of cut down a little bit. He's just doing his job. It's his job to reach out. So it's very important that we reach out. We touch each other. And it's very important that when, when somebody is hurting, we don't judge them. We don't criticize them. We reach out and we lift them back up. When we cut ourselves in the body, you know, do you realize that if you cut yourself severely in the body, the rest of the body's blood flow diminishes so that all the blood... And healing goes to that cut or that broken bone. The rest of the body suffers for a period of time so that that injured part can be healed. And that's the way the church should be to one another. Okay, God, they need the help. I want them to get the help. What happens in many cases is people get jealous. Well, they spend all their time with that person. <laughs> okay, you're in church every day. You seem, on, you seem to be going the right way. They need help. And you're upset that we're helping. Yeah, well, they're just a bunch of sinners because they're the Pharisee. Because they're the Pharisee, <laughs> because they're the Pharisee judging, judging that person that's hurt. Because this is the key for growth in the church. Gently loving one another. Not judging one another. It's been said that the, the Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. And we see that in a lot of churches. Somebody gets hurt. Somebody gets wounded in... We, we're Job's friends. Well, if you just didn't do such and such, you wouldn't be going through these problems. And we beat them up. We make them feel even worse. We really make them feel, I really want to come to church where everybody's going to judge me for, for, for having fallen. You know, and that's not good. We need to be able to reach out to people and say, you're loved. Yes, you had a problem, but God still loves you. And I'm going to love you and I'm going to accept you. Because all of us fall. Now we may not all get our sins shown out to the whole world. Especially the longer we walk with God and the less obvious sins we have. But you know when Jesus said that if you think something, you have fallen into sin. It's pretty easy for me to to not let everybody know what I think. But it's no less a sin before God. You know, and you know, and it's, you know, if you're a new Christian or a young Christian, and you've got some big problems in your life and you're falling down flat on your face a lot, and everybody's seeing those, doesn't make you less of a Christian. We lift you up and say, You're loved, come on back. But Satan wants us to think, you know, you know Satan loves to get us to sin. He'll tell us that God will forgive us of our sins. You know, you can do that, God will forgive you. Ah, the church will probably forgive you too. And as soon as you sin, he's in your ear saying, you're a terrible Christian. How could, how could you have done that? Nobody's going to ever forgive you and, and accept you again because of what you did. And then what do we do? We might even fall for it. Well, you know what? I really am a terrible person. I might as well just go back to what I was doing because you're right. Nobody, no, none of those guys are ever going to, or he'll even worse yet, have, will cross the path of the most judgmental person in the church who will confirm what Satan has been telling us instead of going and seeing the people that are going to love us and care for us. The thing about the people in the body of Christ are there are some really bad examples of Christ in the body. And I'm not saying they're not a Christian, but they're judgmental Pharisees who are going to judge you for everything. And then there's those that are very Christ-like. They're going to love you and, and be kind. So do not take it personal when the Pharisee comes and attacks you. Just say, okay, you're not the one I want to go talk to. Let me go find somebody else. <laughs> and find the person who's going to love you. Now, that person who loves you may not tell you that you're, you're perfect and fine and everything, but they're going to say, yes, you're still loved. You need to repent. You need to come back. They may be hard. They may have some hard things to say to you even. But that love is still, you can tell. You know, we all know what it means to be hit by a Pharisee then we don't feel any love from them at all. And we can have somebody else giving us Maybe just as hard a message, but we know that that love is there and that they're saying it because they want us to come back. You know, and hopefully our attitude is one of love. And love can speak some hard things. You know, true love speaks hard things at times. But it, is, it has to come across with that love because the sin will drive us further away. The Pharisee will drive us further away if we let them. And if you get somebody who's a Pharisee, you go, okay, thank you, let me go find somebody who's, <laughs> who, who's, actually, going, who's actually going to give me, give me God's love. Because there's both sides in the church. And the problem is that so many people get stuck on the Pharisees that they quit looking for the people who are going to show God's love. And unfortunately, the Pharisees usually outnumber the, the ones that show Christ's love in a church. And more often than not, the Pharisees outnumber them. And it's really easy for people to get discouraged when they get hit by two or three Pharisees before they find the person who's loving. You know, just keep seeking that person who's loving. If it's a good church, there'll be some loving, loving Christians in it. If you can't find a Christian, a good loving Christian in a, in a church, get out of that church and go find one where there's some, where there's some good, good, good loving Christians in it. Okay? Uh, but if there's a good body of being taught by a pastor and teachers that are teaching God's word, there's going to be some people that are going to be loving Christians. Will it be everybody? No. Matter of fact, I would say everybody in the church isn't even saved in most churches. Okay? Some churches have very few Christians in them. If they're not having a good pastor, and even in a church that has a very good pastor teaching the Bible message and salvation message, there are still people who aren't saved in that church. They're hardening their heart hearing God's word. So just be aware that everybody in the church, number one, isn't a Christian. Of those who are Christians, there's Pharisees and there's those that are going to love people. Don't get stuck listening to the Pharisees. Job's friends were Pharisees. Job, you must have been a really awful person because you know, Job, only rich people are are blessed and poor people are are hated by God. And now you're poor, Job. You must have been doing something really, really awful. He had four Pharisees trying to give him comfort. (laughs) Supposed comfort. And The problem was is that Job believed it too. He believed that wealth was blessed and that poverty was bad. God was trying to teach him a lesson as well. And oftentimes God is trying to teach us lessons through our hardships and we just need to be able to open our eyes and say, God, what is it that I'm supposed to learn? You know, what causes hardship? Well, sin. So our first job is, God, did I do something and am I being judged for my sin? Don't be too introspective, you know, don't try to go, well, you know, God, uh, I maybe possibly, no, if you don't know something that's very clearly a sin, ignore it. It's Satan attacking you. It could be that God is saying, I've got a lesson for you, and it says, I just want to teach you. It may, and there's actually a third opportunity for it, it may just be that you can be, it is a test to see, are you going to be persistent for God? Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and he said, I asked God three times to take it away from me, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. So some of these things, I mean, it could be any three, and we don't know what it is in our life. Our first step is, God, if I sin, am I have done something really bad that I deserve this? And again, don't get so introspective that you say, well, you know, I did this halfway, so it must have been that. No, no. If you can't identify a sin, then don't start dwelling on it being a sin. Then you can go, God, what am I supposed to learn? Or is this just my grace is sufficient for you? And it could be any one of those. So the ideal on the situation, you know where I go first? God's grace grace is sufficient. God, I'm just going to say that you're in control. It didn't happen to me unless you allowed it. Your grace is sufficient. Even if I deserve it and I've done something to deserve it, his grace is sufficient. If it's a lesson I'm trying to learn, his grace is sufficient. It all boils down to that last statement. His grace is sufficient. God doesn't allow anything to come into my life that he doesn't allow. And there's a reason for everything that he's, it's either a punishment or a lesson. And all I've got to do is say, God, your grace. Repent if I know I've done something wrong and your grace is going to get me through it. God, I can't think of anything I've done. Your grace is going to get me through it. Help me learn whatever it is I'm supposed to learn, or if I'm not supposed to learn anything, your grace is sufficient. Makes life a whole lot easier. Bad things happen. Okay, God, it's all grace. Your grace is going to get me through it. You're going to give me strength to get it through it. So important as we go through on all of this. And we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. Lord, we ask that you guide us. Teach us what you would want us to help. Lord, help keep us far from sin. And Lord, help us to always show love to other believers in in the body that we can help encourage. And give us the heart of love that when we see somebody going the wrong way, that we'll reach out and help bring them back. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.